0: Hello, this is Father Neil here, and welcome to the April 23rd edition of the podcast Catechism with Father Neil. Today we'll be looking at Numbers 871 to 896 of the Catechism. Paragraph 4 Christ's Faithful Hierarchy, Laity, Consecrated Life. The Christian faithful are those who, in, inasmuch as they have been incorporated in Christ through baptism, have been constituted as the people of God. For this reason, since they have become sharers in Christ's priestly, prophetic and royal office, in their own manner they are called to exercise the mission which God has entrusted to the Church to fulfil in the world in accord with the condition proper to each one. 8.72 In virtue of their rebirth in Christ, there exists among all the Christian faithful a true equality with regard to Dignity, and the activity whereby all cooperate in the building up of the body of Christ in accord with each one's own condition and function. 8-73. The very differences which the Lord has willed to put between the members of his body serve its unity and mission. For in the church there is diversity of ministry but unity of mission. To the apostles and their successors, Christ has entrusted the office of teaching, sanctifying and governing in his name and by his power. But the laity are made to share in the priestly, prophetical and kingly office of Christ. They have therefore in the church and in the world their own assignment in the mission of the whole people of God. Finally, from both groups, hierarchy and laity, there exist Christian faithful, who are consecrated to God in their own special manner and serve the salvific mission of the Church through the profession of the Evangelical Councils. 1. The hierarchical constitution of the Church. What is Ecclesial Ministry? Eight seventy-four. Christ himself is the source of ministry in the Church. He instituted the Church. He gave her authority and mission, orientation and goal. In order to shepherd the people of God and to increase its numbers without cease, Christ the Lord set up in his church a variety of offices which aim at the good of the whole body. The holders of office, who are invested with the sacred power, are in fact dedicated to promoting the interests of their brethren so that all who belong to the people of God may attain to salvation. 875. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard of? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? No one, no individual and no community can proclaim the gospel to himself. Faith comes from what is heard. No one can give himself the mandate and the mission to proclaim the gospel. The one sent by the Lord does not speak and act on his own authority but by virtue of Christ's authority not as a member of the community but speaking to it in the name of Christ no one can bestow on himself no one can bestow grace on himself it must be given and offered the, this fact presupposes ministers of grace authorized and empowered by Christ from him bishops and priests receive their the mission and faculty, the sacred power, to act in persona Christi capitis, in the person of Christ the head. Deacons receive the strength to serve the people of God in the di- diaconia of liturgy, word and charity, in communion with the bishop and his presbyterate, the ministry in which Christ, Christ's emissaries, do and give by God's grace what they cannot do and give by their own person is called a sacrament by the Christian tradition. Indeed, the ministry of the Church is conferred by a special sacrament. 876 Intrinsically linked to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry is its character as service. Entirely dependent on Christ, who gives mission and authority, ministers are truly slaves of Christ. In the image of him who freely took the form of a slave for us. Because the word and grace of which they are ministers are not their own, but are given to them by Christ for the sake of others, they must freely become slaves of all. 877. Likewise, it belongs to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry that it have a collegial character. In fact, from the beginning of his ministry, the Lord Jesus instituted the twelve as the seeds of the new Israel and the beginning of the sacred hierarchy. Chosen together, they were also sent out together, and their fraternal unity would be at the service of the fraternal communion of all the faithful. They would reflect and witness to the communion of the divine persons. For this reason, every bishop exercises his ministry from within the Episcopal College in communion with the Bishop of Rome, the successor of St. Peter and the head of the college, so also priests exercise their ministry from within the Presbyterium of the diocese under the direction of their bishop. 878. Finally, it belongs to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry that it have a personal character. Although Christ's ministers act in communion with one another, they also always act in a personal way. Each one is called personally. You, follow me. In order to be a personal witness within the commun- the common mission of to bear personal responsibility before him who gives the mission, acting in his person and for other persons. I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I absolve you. Eight seventy nine, Sacramental ministry in the Church, then, is a service exercised in the name of Christ. It has a personal character and a collegial form. This is evidenced by the bonds between the Episcopal College and its head, the successor of Peter and in the relationship between the bishop's pastoral responsibility for his particular church and the common solicitude of the Episcopal College for the Universal Church. The Episcopal College and its head, the Pope. 880. When Christ instituted the Twelve, he constituted them in the form of a college or permanent assembly at the head of which he placed Peter, chosen from among them. Just as by the Lord's institution, St. Peter and the rest of the Apostles constitute a single apostolic college, so in like fashion the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor, and the bishops, the successors of the Apostles, are related with and united to one another. 881. The Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles, united to its head. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the Church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. 882. The Pope, Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishop and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman Pontiff, by reason of his office as Vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire Church, has full, supreme and universal power over the whole Church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. 883. The College, or body of the Bishops, has no authority unless united with the Roman Pontiff, Peter's successor as its head. As such, this College has supreme and full authority over the universal Church. But this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman Pontiff. 885. Sorry, 884. The College of Bishops exercises power over the universal Church in a solemn manner in an ecumenical council. But there is never an ecumenical council which is not confirmed or at least recognised as such by Peter's successor. 885. This College, insofar as it it is composed of many members, is the expression of the variety and universality of the people of God and of the unity of the flock of Christ, insofar as it is assembled under one head. 8.86 The individual bishops are the visible source and foundation of unity in their own particular churches. As such, they exercise their pastoral office Over the portion of the people of God assigned to them, assisted by priests and deacons. But, as a member of the Episcopal College, each bishop shares in the concern for all the churches. The bishops exercise this care, first by ruling well their own churches as portions of the universal church, and so contributing to the welfare of the whole mystical body, which, from another point of view, is a corporate body of churches. They extend it especially to the poor, to those persecuted for the faith, as well as to missionaries who are working throughout the world. 887. Neighbouring particular churches, who share the same culture, form ecclesiastical provinces or larger groupings called patriarchates or regions. The bishops of these groupings can meet in synods or provincial councils. In a like fashion, the Episcopal conferences at the present time, are in a position to contribute in many and fruitful ways to the concrete realisation of the collegiate spirit. The Teaching Office, 888. Bishops with priests as co-workers have as their first task to preach the Gospel of God to all men in keeping with the Lord's command. They are heralds of faith who draw new disciples to Christ They are the authentic teachers of the apostolic faith, endowed with the authority of Christ. 889. In order to preserve the Church in the purity of the faith handed on by the Apostles, Christ, who is the truth, willed to confer on her a share in his own infallibility. By a supernatural sense of faith, the people of God under the guidance of the Church's living magisterium Unfailingly and adheres to this faith. 890. The mission of the Magisterium is linked to the defence of nature, of the covenant established by God with his people in Christ. It is this Magisterium's task to preserve God's people from deviations and defections, and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. Thus, the pastoral duty of the Magisterium is aimed at seeing to it that the people of God abides in the truth that liberates. To fulfil this service, Christ endowed the Church's shepherds with the charism of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. The exercise of this charism takes several forms. 891. The Roman Pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office when, as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. The infallibility promised to the Church is also present in the body of bishops when, together with Peter's successor, they exercise the supreme magisterium, above all in an ecumenical council, when the Church, throughout its, through its supreme magisterium, proposes a doctrine for belief as being divinely revealed, and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of faith. This infallibility extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation itself. 892. Divine assistance is always given to the successors of the apostles, teaching in communion with the successor of Peter, and in a particular way to the bishop of Rome, pastor of the whole church, when, with without arriving at an a- an infallible definition and without proclaiming in a definitive manner they propose in the exercise of the ordinary magisterium a teaching that leads to better understanding of revelation in matters of faith and morals to this ordinary teaching the faithful are to adhere with religious assent which through which though distinct from the assent of faith is nonetheless an extension of it the sanctifying office 893 The bishop is the steward of the grace of the supreme priesthood, especially in the Eucharist, which he offers personally or whose offering he assures through the priests, his co-workers. The bishop, the Eucharist, is the centre of the life of the particular church. The bishop and priests sanctify the church by their prayer and work, by their ministry of the word and of the sacraments. They sanctify her by their example, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. Thus, together with the flock entrusted to them, they may attain to eternal life. The Governing Office, 894 The bishops, as vicars and legates of Christ, govern the particular churches assigned to them by their counsels, exhortations and example. But over and above that, also by authority and sacred power, which indeed they ought to exercise so as to edify in the spirit of service, which is that of their master. 895. The power which they exercise personally in the name of Christ is proper, ordinary and immediate, although its exercise is ultimately controlled by the supreme authority of the Church. But the bishops should not be thought of as vicars of the Pope, His ordinary and immediate authority over the whole church does not annul, but on the contrary confirms and defends that of the bishops. Their authority must be exercised in communion with the whole church and under the guidance of the Pope. 896. The Good Shepherd ought to be the model and form of the bishop's pastoral office. Conscious of his own weakness, the bishop can have compassion for those who are ignorant and erring. He should not refuse to listen to his own subjects whose welfare he promotes uh, as of his very own children. The faithful should be closely attached to the bishop as the church is to Jesus Christ and as Jesus Christ is to the Father. Let all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows his Father and the college of presbyters as the apostles. Respect the deacons as you do God's law. Let no one do anything concerning the church in separation from the bishop. Okay, very well. So again, today we had this long section, um, a fairly technical section, dealing with uh, the church, dealing with the um, the hierarchical constitution of the church. What is ministry in the church? And um, I suppose on one level we can say it's very technical, and it's kind of a bit long-winded. But on the other hand, it is a very good distillation of the Church's theology, of the Church's teaching. Again, if you take something for 2,000 years, many times it's not going to be easy to explain. And yet here it does it very well. Again, these are the sections that you can read over again if you've got any particular question about them. Um, I mean, it's dealing with these three uh, types of... Gov- of uh, These three, uh, munera is the the word in Latin, these three powers, these three gifts, these three ministries that are exercised in the church. The governing and the sanctifying and the teaching. And showing how these, um, how the bishops in particular exercise these. That this is something that is exercised within the church as a ministry. Remembering also always that ministry means being small that the ministers are the one who are meant to be small, looking after the others. Sometimes it might seem uh, different to that, but this is the ultimate goal of ministry, to put down your life, lay down your life in favour of others, to serve them. And the ordained ministers are called to serve in a special way. That's why bishops and priests don't marry, so that they can serve the body of Christ. And since this world, we've lost the sense of service. So often we think of me, and this is why so many uh, so many people have problems. This is why some priests and bishops have great problems, because they're just looking out for themselves. The same way it's the reason why some marriages break down, because they're looking out for themselves. You know, a father or a mother can't be a good parent if they don't put their children first, if they don't serve them. The same way a priest or a bishop can't be a good uh, minister if he, if he doesn't. Put the people before himself. Put what's best for the people. And again, in the same way as with a parent, it's not a matter of doing what the child wants. You know, it's very easy in a sense to be a a, a popular parent if you always do what the children want. If every time they want to buy sweets or candy at the grocery store, uh, that you always give them what they want. And unfortunately, if you do like this, you're creating a monster. And the same thing runs true for the spiritual life. That if the bishop or the priest, or also the deacon, is not serving, which is different to people-pleasing, which is different to Saul in the Old Testament, who has this great fault. He's a fantastic king, but he's a great fault, that he's always trying to please the people. And because of this, God ultimately rejects him. And we need to see this also ourselves, that it's not about pleasing people. It's about discovering how to serve how to put that how to help them and so this this whole section again i won't say much more about it but this whole section is putting all this in context and also showing how it works in communion again the point i always come back to the church works in communion you take the spirit of communion out of it and then the bishops won't get on with the pope the priests won't get on with their bishop the the, the the lay faithful won't get on. The people just end up fighting, end up looking for their own corners, which is the unfortunate reality in some of our churches, some of our um, ecclesial uh, communities. The people are just looking for themselves and fighting over things. And sometimes it doesn't matter what it is. It can seem to be a very noble fight for some great principle of doctrine, some great principle of whatever. But we convert the Christian faith into an excuse. To think that we are better than our brother or our sister. And if you think you're better than your brother or your sister, then ultimately you're not Christian. Ultimately you're a pagan. I'm sorry to say it. And that this is why this this to have communion is so important. To be able to serve is so important. To, to This is what this uh, section, as I say, this complicated section, but a section is trying to get across this very important truth. That the church has to be built on communion and service and that this is the only way that the church can make sense today so very well i've spoken too much but anyway we'll continue tomorrow and tomorrow we'll look at numbers 871 sorry excuse me 897 to 913 god bless